Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Lindsay Meka, who's the author of Building Participatory Institutions in Latin America, Reform Coalitions and Institutional Change. This book was published in 2019 by Cambridge University Press and is a really interesting exploration of not only two particular countries in Latin America, um, in this case, Brazil and Colombia, but also questions about participatory institutions, understandings of democracy, um, and a whole slew of dynamics around how policy works. But I'm going to let Lindsay talk to us a little bit about that. First, I'd like to welcome Lindsay to the New Books in Political Science and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this really fascinating project. Hi, Lindsay. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so I am a professor of government at Colby College, and the origin of this book um, really comes actually before I even started my PhD. Um, I was working after college at the U.S. Agency for International Development, in, um, and I was on the country team for Peru. And so for this work I was doing at USAID, I went down to Peru at the time when they were rolling out a massive reform to require all governments throughout the entire country to have these new participatory institutions, which are spaces for civil society to be involved in the policymaking process and to make decisions about how to spend money and to make policy priorities. And so they're requiring every government to implement this. And my question um, that came out to my mind is, how is this going to happen? Where is this going to how is this going to to work on the ground and in practice? And it made me think a lot of questions that are really not um, donor questions and are more questions for research about how you take something that is a mandate and actually put it into practice. So I actually started the PhD with this question in mind. Um, and so the the project, um, it actually, so I started with that big question in the beginning and um, throughout uh, the period of graduate school, I realized as I learned more that I was going to have to um, learn more about Brazil because Brazil was the place um, in the world that has the most elaborate system of participatory institutions. And so there are dozens of policy areas where the government has required that these governments, um, the local governments throughout the country, implements um, these spaces for for citizens and civil society to be involved in it. And so Brazil is this world leader. And so I um, started learning Portuguese to do this. um, And that kind of launched me into this whole process. there really, when I started graduate school, was hardly anything that was written in English on the topic. I just knew it from doing the the, the work in Latin America that I'd done. Uh, but I knew this was something that was sweeping throughout the, the entire region, that basically every country in all of Latin America had some sort of national law requiring governments to implement this. Um, and so I, I wanted to look uh, at Brazil, given that that was the big um, case that had the most of this implemented. But I also wanted to look around and look into um, another area. And so that's sort of the the origin of this project, um, thinking about some of the big questions in there uh, about how do you actually turn um, these really aspirational ideas about bringing democracy to the local level, about involving groups in society and policymaking and really turning that into something that operates in practice. And and this idea of, as you say, bringing democracy to the local level um, and the idea of these participatory institutions, I just wanted to ask you sort of to open up the sort of discussion. Um, when you are talking about participatory institutions, you've given us some understanding of what they are, but in the in the countries that you're looking at in Brazil and then in Colombia, um, how would we understand them to be? What are these institutions and and who is participating in them? Right. Um, So there's something that there, these participatory institutions are something that originated for the most part in Latin America 
Brazil being the site where you had a lot of this experimentation in new forms of democracy in the 1980s, but they've since spread and, and they actually do operate in the United States as well. So participatory institutions are going to vary a bit in terms of um, across a policy area, but fundamentally what they are is a, a space that is created and sanctioned by the government but that opens up policymaking to either everyday citizens or grassroots groups or civil society organizations so that their ways of influencing um, the policymaking process is not simply by voting or not simply by lobbying or not simply by protest, but instead they actually have a seat at the table. Right. So in so if you're going to be formulating health policy, you bring together the people who are using um, health services alongside nurses and doctors, alongside the people who run hospitals, uh, alongside people who are from um, specific disease uh, organizations, such as like the AIDS movement. And you bring those groups together and together collectively alongside the state, you develop uh, specific policy proposals or decide how to spend money. And so this is something that is a hybrid between civil society and the state. It depends on the state to create these spaces, uh, but fundamentally centers the experiences of of civil society. So they can vary a lot in terms of um, what types of groups from civil society are participating. And one thing to note is that, as I mentioned early on, they they do operate in the United States. Uh, so one model is participatory budgeting, which originated in Brazil and now operates in cities all throughout the U.S., including uh, New York City, Boston, Chicago, San Francisco. So you see lots of different cities that have opened up the policymaking process to bring citizens into it. And so you're you're looking at this and you're looking at it specifically in Latin America. And I was curious as I was reading through the book about what was going on that sort of prompted this. You talk about the fact that Brazil is a world leader in this, but that there was a sort of sweep that transpired in the 80s and 90s. Um, what was going on that led to this sort of move towards participatory institutions and and essentially opening up this kind of civic space? So there are two moments, I would say. So as you, you point out, the 80s and 90s is this really innovative and interesting time. Um, and in Latin America, when you, when you look at that period, the, the first thing is that that is a period where you see democratization happening in many Latin American countries. They're opening up um, and transitioning from military regimes. And in that process, a lot of countries in Latin America are reconsidering what kinds of democracy they want to have. It's not simply having a return to civilian rule and a return to elections. That's going to be part of democracy. But one of the things that you see in particular in Brazil is that there is a, a new consideration of what citizenship is going to look like and mean at this period of time. And so it's this moment of opening and flux where you can bring in some new ideas about how to make democracy work better. Um, and it's coming in reaction to a lot of people's frustrations with how democracy had operated in the past. So a democracy in the past had been very elite-centered um, and closed to the everyday citizen, um, that it had been limited to people who had influence and power. And when people who were, were poor or working class had been included, it, it had been through these more hierarchical uneven um, foundations that didn't really allow for a lot of equality, a lot of real voice in shaping policy. And so the idea was, well, can we expand beyond these standard democratic institutions, things like you know elections and legislatures that aren't being particularly responsive to a lot of the needs and demands of, of citizens? 
and find ways to amplify that voice and bring it into the state. So it's this period of opening. And then in in Colombia, you don't have a military dictatorship, but there's a similar period of rethinking what democracy can look like and what citizenship would look like. There's a second period, however, that happens more towards the later 90s and the 2000s, where you see an expansion of participatory institutions that happens more through a uh, neoliberal mindset uh, and through promotion by donor agencies. And so the the thinking on that we see spreading through many other countries is that this is a an interesting way that you could possibly save money, um, that you could be implementing policies with fewer resources or more efficiency because you're actually addressing the the needs of a community instead of building massive projects and making these investments that nobody ever asked for. And so there's this confluence between a deepening democracy idea and an efficiency idea that are brought together by these participatory institutions. And so I wanted to to take you next to the sort of broader theoretical framework that is the perspective that you are looking at the particular countries and then the particular issue areas within the countries that you're sort of comparing. Um, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, these terms and understandings that you talk about of sectoral reform and policy and entrepreneurs. And as I was reading through the book, I was thinking about what does sectoral reform mean and how do I understand it, um, not only in the countries that you're looking at, but how might I as an Americanist apply that in the United States. So if you could talk a little bit about those two aspects, particularly since they seem to be the frames of understanding sort of participatory institutions, I would greatly appreciate it. Right. So the the book um, is looking to, to explain why participatory institutions go from being just on the books to actually operating and functioning as living, breathing institutions that are really capable of of shaping the policy process. So what's that institution building process like? And so the the two explanations I have um, that to independent variables or factors that need to come together to make this happen um, are, as you say, the sweeping sectoral reform, which would be shaking up a policy sector that is... um, creates an opportunity that you'd have key leaders who would be policy entrepreneurs that would seize that opportunity. Um, Maybe I'm going to start and take a step back and say that in general, you know, the thing that, that struck me back in 2004 when I was working for the U.S. Agency for International Development and the, the roots of this project are in general assuming that, Overall, you should see a lot of failed participatory institutions. The Latin America is littered with all these wonderful, beautiful laws that exist on paper that never really operate um, or are only half-baked and never come into fruition. And so this seems like it would be the prime example of something like that, right? Where you have this beautiful, wonderful idea for deepening democracy, and you're going to bring citizens into the policymaking process, and it's going to have this emancipatory effect. And it sounds great. And how is this ever going to be put into practice? Um, So the idea that I have, the starting point is to assume that this is probably not going to work most of the time, that you're going to have failures of institution building, that you're going to have a, a law that exists on the books, and then that's that. Um, so the surprising situation is when you're able to go from being on the books and then do the slog of building up that new institution. How does that really happen? And so to to explain that, um, the thing that I started that, that you see from the start is that these participatory institutions that take root are linked with some sort of major um, sweeping policy reform that shakes up a policy sector. So if you just create a participatory institution and the reform to do so is just a law saying, hey, let's have a new participatory institution, then nothing's going to happen. Um, really, it's, it's going to be very difficult to get anything implemented if you're not shaking anything up. 
And why would that be? Because you'd be able to bring together enough people to pass a law, but then it would be really hard to get enough people together to invest in something that exists really to deepen democracy. People care about that in an inspirational moment, but not in the long process of building something up that's going to take resources and have opportunity costs and would involve taking away power from somebody else. So what happens with this sort of sweeping reform, and this is something that you see, for example, with the Brazilian health reform. Um, in, in that case, you see the, the participatory institution of these health councils are created alongside uh, a overhaul of the health sector. And this overhaul of the health sector doesn't just create new spaces for participation. It decentralizes the health sector. It creates all these new programs and initiatives. It totally restructures health, health agencies, shuts down old health agencies and creates new ones. Um, and it involves making the health system universal. And so it's a major overhaul of, of the, the policy sector. So it's a really a sweeping reform that you can think of as sweeping aside the old status quo and creating something radically different in its place. Um, in terms of examples for, um, for the United States, you'd have to think about something that, that really was something that was radical. Um, and so I'm thinking back to a lot of things that, that were involved with creating, say, creating Medicare. Um, so something that, that you saw back decades ago, that's something that's going to be really a quite revolutionary um, reform of the health sector or of another kind of policy sector. And so what happens when you have these sweeping reforms is that they shake up the status quo. Um, as I mentioned, you're shutting down old agencies and you're creating new agencies. And what happens in that with that process is that you are shutting out people who had had, had access to influence and power before, um, and you're creating new openings for new kinds of groups that maybe didn't have as much influence and have new ideas about how things should be done. And so things are, are in flux. Um, but with this, one of the key things that happens also with a sweeping reform is that you have all these different kinds of actors in a society that would be interested in making this reform succeed. Um, so for the example of the Brazilian health reform, what you see is that local governments had a real strong incentive for this health reform to be implemented. And why is that? Well, because it decentralized money. They had tons of money that was at stake. They were going to be getting a lot of funds for their own programs. And as they got those transfers for new programs, that would mean that local um, secretaries of health and local mayors would be able to craft their own names and maybe advance politically if they did a good job. And so you had these groups that were interested in health decentralization. You had um, physicians groups and people in health workers unions who were interested in this kind of reform because it also had a lot of benefits for them in terms of their professional benefits, as well as you had people who wanted participation because they wanted more participation. They also had interests. And so you had lots of different groups who all came together around an interest in making this sweeping reform work. And the key part is that the participatory element was bundled in and woven in with all these other components so that having a participatory council was part of getting those decentralized funds, right? And implementing these new programs, they would be overseen by the health council. So they're all woven together. And the key thing there is that it brought together some more elite groups that were saying, yeah, we, we want oversight. We want these councils to operate because it was the key to getting the broader health reform implemented. And so that's what happens with this sort of sweeping reform. It's something that shakes up the existing structures and opens up these new opportunities. And you can have reform coalitions that come together behind the broader reform implementation, not just for the participatory institution. Because if it was just for the participatory institution, you would be focusing on the groups that care about 
deepening democracy, which ultimately, as I guess a more pessimistic political scientist, I don't think that there are many groups who care deeply, deeply about deepening democracy. And so you rely on people's vested interests and their um, their own personal interests to kind of harness that and bring it along to create these kinds of institutions in the longer run. Um, but so that so the sweeping reform creates a s- sort of opening and um, the flux where you would need to step into in order to build up a participatory institution. But in the the same same time, um, you can have those sort of moments and then have nobody take advantage of them. And so the second part of the argument is about having policy entrepreneurs who are deeply committed to expanding participation. And so you have this opening, and if you have a key group of of leaders who are in um, a a key position to be advocating for the implementation of the reform, they can promote the ideas and they can craft together that coalition. So, you know, local governments aren't naturally on their own going to say, yes, we definitely support um, these participatory institutions, which fundamentally are about checking the the power of of local governments. Uh, But if you have key reform leaders who are going in and working with these different actors and saying, no, no, this is actually in your interest, you would be benefiting a lot if we had these councils, because that way we can convince people to decentralize the funds. You, You need to have somebody who takes that leadership role. You don't just automatically have coalitions that that come together. And so these key leaders are the ones that that really ensure that that opportunity is seized and that over and over you you build up the coalition and you make the kinds of investments that are needed to build a participatory institution to not only get it created in the legislature, um, but then to pass the subsequent regulations that ensure that it operates, that it's well-funded, to make sure that somebody's going throughout the country and making sure that every government actually is implementing it throughout the country, that people know how they operate, uh, that you have training, that they develop the resources. This this long process, you need to have um, somebody behind it and mobilizing people in that long process. And so that's the the combination of those two factors comes together and explains why you can see the process of, of building a participatory institution in some places, but not in others. And so I, I wanted to, I mean, this is an amazing overview of essentially what you are exploring with the two particular countries that you're looking at. And you've talked a little bit about how Brazil was the world leader. And I wanted to ask you before we get into some of the the comparisons of policy, and you've talked a bit about some of the particular successes of the health councils in Brazil, what it was that was perhaps an interesting comparison to make in terms of Brazil and Colombia, um, and why a little bit um, Colombia was the other um, country that you are are paying very close attention to in terms of the policies that in Colombia seemed less successful than they were in Brazil. Right. So if you, I mean, if you if you were looking at this at a period of time in, say, the early 1990s, I don't think that it would be so obvious which one of these countries would have been more successful. And in fact, if you looked at Brazil, um, a lot of the literature in the early to mid-1990s kept talking about what a failure social policy reform was in Brazil and that democracy was was um, so hollow and it kept being extremely disappointing that social rights reforms were completely stalled um, and that participation was not going to exist. And so that was sort of the, the message in the early 90s is that Brazil wasn't going to be a leader. In fact, it was just a leader in how to screw things up. <laughs> um, at the same time, um, in Colombia, so in, in Brazil, a lot of this process begins in the 1980s and goes through the early 90s. Same process is happening in Colombia in the early 1990s. Uh, there's a lot of similarities between the two countries during that period. So one major difference is that Brazil was transitioning from a military dictatorship 
and Colombia was not and had not had a dictatorship. But in a lot of ways, it was going through its own form of democratic opening that was really quite remarkable. Um, After this period of the 1980s, which was a period of tremendous bloodshed um, in terms of the conflict and the growing power of um, of narcos in in Colombia, you see a government that is completely unresponsive and had been so closed off to popular demands that there was really very little room for people to have any kind of voice in politics. And in fact, in the the sixties and the seventies, the governments had basically rotated power back and forth between the two major parties. Um, that they would, through something, they had a a consociational agreement that they would just alternate power, right? That there was not actually even a real democratic election. They would have a democracy, but then the other party would abstain. And so you have this process where you technically have a democracy, and yet it's so closed to to popular voices that it de facto is really not much of a democracy at all. So they're both going through this period of opening. Um, And furthermore, it's not just a period of opening. You see a lot of very similar ideas about what this new kind of democracy should look like, uh, that it needs to go beyond simply elections and formal um, institutions like Congress, that you need to create a new participatory democracy. So in 1988, Brazil passes a new constitution that um, prioritizes participation and um, says that that participatory democracy is going to be the center of Brazilian democracy. Likewise, in Colombia in 1991, there's a new constitution that really emphasizes participatory democracy and that that's going to be the, the centerpiece of the new democratic regime. And so you have these similar, very similar language um, in the constitutions that links the expansion of social rights um, and these progressive constitutions with, in particular, ideas of participatory democracy. And then likewise, in the 1990s for both countries, you don't just have the constitution and stuff there, but you also have all of these other laws that pass a, an ongoing effort to build new participatory institutions. So they pass another law, they pass another law, pass another law, and create dozens of different spaces for participation in, in the two countries. And so they, they start in fairly similar starting points in terms of some of the ideas and that feeling of opportunity uh, in both cases. So having talked to people in both places, they they say, you know, it felt like everything was possible and that we could really imagine a totally new way of doing democracy. Um, And that's where you see these participatory institutions come from. And yet, as time went on, that effervescence that you saw in in Colombia just kind of faded away. And so when I would talk to the people who had been involved in the early 90s, they looked back at that time period where they thought, participatory democracy was possible. And they say, you know, it was lovely, but we were so naive and we were so foolish to think that you could ever build participatory institutions, that that was ever possible. Um, and meanwhile, across the border in Brazil, they they were doing that. And people obviously have complaints um, and qualms about how things are implemented. Nothing's ever perfect. There's certainly problems, but you were able to put those into practice. It wasn't just a pipe dream. Um, and so you see this divergence in the process, not of creating the legal frameworks initially, but in the process of, of building the participatory institutions on, on the ground. And that was one of the, the terms that I see sort of throughout your book is existing on paper. Um, you you talk a lot about the you know the cap the capacity to pass the laws to sort of designate the space to sort of cr- create the idea and then that it doesn't always come to pass that is anything more than on paper but particularly this is the case in Colombia and much less so the case in Brazil. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about the 
the comparative policy areas that you look at. You talked about the the health councils, which seem to be one of the really success stories with regard to um, Brazil's capacity to move into really doing participatory institutions. Um, And you have Colombia's health committees um, as an area where there was essentially a failure. Can you talk about what you saw as some of the differences in these two experiences in the two countries with this policy area? Yeah. So, I'll, I'll maybe um, peel back a little bit and talk about uh, how I selected the cases in the first place. You know? um, so, you know, as I mentioned earlier, when I started this, there was just really very little written on um, on participatory institutions. Well, there have been some that had been written about when mayors implement participatory institutions, but there was very, very little written on these sorts of national frameworks, which I looked around and seemed um, incredibly important and yet weren't being addressed. So I didn't have a lot of prior knowledge that I could draw on. Um, It's a case where the universe was fairly unknown. It's a universe of cases. We didn't know exactly what the range was. And I had to kind of start poking around and exploring um, myself. And so I knew that I was going to do Brazil, right? So I started taking Portuguese to, to, to do this project um, because Brazil was the one country that people had written anything about. And that was mostly Brazilians having written about it. Um, and I knew that I had to do health because health in Brazil was the model for other policy areas. Uh, and I wasn't sure how that fit into, you know, um, it's not really a most similar systems. It was just the most significant and most important case for understanding the Brazilian model because other cases came out of that. And so for Brazil, I, I looked at um, two different policy areas in Brazil. And the other policy area, I said, well, if there's this area that is, you know, I'm looking at the most significant, substantively important uh, policy area. And I should look at something that is different. Um, so I looked at an area where it seemed like it shouldn't work and yet it was succeeding a surprising amount. And that would be health, uh, the social assistance councils and social assistance was a policy area that, um, is, was, was, and still to some degree is rife with, um, clientelism is a policy area that is really difficult to implement in any way that would have levels of accountability. In fact, the word uh, assistencialismo in Portuguese, um, like assistencialism, whatever, basically saying social assistance itself is a synonym for for patronage uh, and for clientelism. So they're seeing so tightly linked and so creating these spaces of accountability seemed really unlikely and surprising in Brazil. Um, so that's one of the areas that I, I picked. Um, and then I was looking at Colombia. I wanted to have, so I didn't want to just look at Brazil because people had done work on Brazil. I wanted to kind of expand our, our understanding since we do have these participatory institutions, other places in Latin America. And so I picked Colombia because it was an area where I knew things were not working quite as well. Um, even though they had these similarities, I didn't know very much about what anything looked like at the time before I even arrived in Colombia. I just knew that they had participatory institutions and that they weren't going great, but really there was very little that was written on it. Um, and so, um, I, after poking around, I thought, well, I should probably have a similar approach in terms of looking at the area that is the model for other areas the policy area when people think of participatory institutions, what pops into their mind. And that would be the Columbian planning councils. And so that I knew I was going to do. And then I said, well, I should look at, you know, it would be good to look at health in both countries if I can. Um, but also having known that for, for health in Colombia, this is an area that was just a total disaster, um, that it was kind of difficult to even do some of the, the research because there are no health committees. They exist in the law and then they just faded away within a couple of years and they just essentially don't operate. They operate in when I was doing field work there a couple of years ago, they were in 1% of municipalities in in Colombia. So they just didn't work. They didn't exist. Um and so it's sort of it's it's not a perfect mixed 
or like a Mills method or anything like that, but it was picking areas that seemed important and showed me some sort of variation that I could be explaining. Um, and so you you pointed out the that I since I looked at health in both areas, uh, in both countries, we see these polar opposite results. So the Brazilian health councils are the case where I would say that the the participatory institution is most institutionalized, is strongest throughout the country, um, and the Colombian health committees they just they. They, they, they don't exist. Um, and so that's an area where it was actually created through a sweeping reform. So, you know, on paper, initially, I, I struggled with what to do with this case because I knew that sweeping reform part, it, it, I could tell that that was key, but I couldn't figure out how the Colombian health committees fit with that for, for quite a while. And that's where the policy entrepreneurs are really crucial. So the health committees were created as part of a massive health reform that expanded access and made it a, a basically universal system, decentralized, but it was under a much more um, private sector oriented logic than we see in Brazil. And it was much more focused on um, efficiencies and market mechanisms in Colombia. And so that meant that a lot of the people who were designing and guiding that initial health reform, the ones that were passing the first law and then the subsequent regulations that really put it into practice, they they thought, oh yeah, participation, that could make things more efficient. But they didn't really, it, it wasn't really key. It wasn't important um, for the objectives. It was sort of an afterthought. And so participation was never really crucial for getting the health reform implemented in the way that it had been in Brazil. And so these policy entrepreneurs didn't really make the investment um, to push for, for a coalition to be formed behind it. They didn't push the idea that this needed to be implemented and really advocate those ideas. Um, and so the policy entrepreneurs were, they, they were active in other areas but they weren't mobilized behind um, getting the participatory institutions built up and implemented. And so you, you don't have anyone advocating for these health committees. You have a few initial investments from a person here or there, and then the momentum's gone because they aren't key for getting that health reform actually implemented in the way that in Brazil, the health councils had become crucial to mobilizing support and becoming this um, vehicle for advancing health reform itself. In, in Colombia, it didn't serve that, that purpose. And so you have an opening, you have all this churn that could have been useful, but then you don't really have that same sort of um, uh, leadership in bringing together the forces that are needed to implement it. And so that is the sort of um, the case where things just completely fall apart. In Colombia, the other case is the planning councils, which in other ways is, is a really interesting case. Um, this is an area where planning had been seen as this linchpin for a democracy um, to function. It had been the planning in Colombia sort of is like the Soviet five-year plans. It's like a, a big strategic planning. It's not urban planning. It's more strategic planning. And so every um, government would create these development plans or does create these development plans with every administration of a, of a mayor or a governor um, or the president. They have a development plan. And so in the past, the people who had been involved in setting these development plans that lay out top priorities um, how you're going to allocate funds, what your main um, policy initiatives are going to be for your administration. It had been technical experts. Um, economists would be involved in this, architects, engineers. A lot of those technocratic voices had been involved in it. And so when you had this shift towards the democratic opening and the re-envisioning what um, citizen participation could look like in the policy process, Planning emerged as the most important area because this is an incredibly important process of developing these sort of strategic plans, these development plans. 
And the idea was, well, let's bring in all sorts of different voices from society in setting priorities and developing new policy initiatives and deciding how we're going to prioritize different projects for, for a budget. And so let's bring those, those actors in. And so it really is this case where there was no sweeping sectoral reform. The, the, the base of the planning reform really was simply in procedure. It was in, let's not just focus on technocratic experts in deciding our priorities. Let's democratize that process and bring in new actors. So the essence of that of that planning reform was simply participation. That was the point. Um, and that's a case where, in practice, that meant that a lot of people were excited about it at the time um, when this was first being proposed in the early 90s. But then when time comes around to really making the kinds of investments that are required to take power away from groups that have power and to build up these new kinds of institutions, it's just, it's just never the right time. It's never a priority. And people within the state are just not going to make those investments. And so what happens is that you don't have that sweeping reform that leads to these openings where you'd have local governments that say, yes, please, let's, let's bring in new forms of participation. And you have um, other kinds of elite groups like professionals who are saying, oh, this can be key to getting what we want to get done, um, they're not involved in it. And so in some ways, this seems like it should be a really um, negative case. Uh, but instead, what you see here is that there was a key group of policy entrepreneurs who said, well, we see that nobody else is interested in this, but this is a really good idea. We want this to happen. And so you have a handful of individuals who went around the country um, raising money from international donors, raising money from um, business associations, and they um, built up a regulatory framework themselves when the, the government wouldn't do it. They uh, went to each community and uh, trained people on how to do this. They developed sample bylaws that could be implemented. They provided them with technical assistance in terms of getting things started. So they helped disseminate that idea of how to do participatory planning, even when there was no support from, from the state. And so you have these policy entrepreneurs that are really building up a, a quite lovely coalition um, with, with just on, on, on their own initiative, and they're not able to really count on the state, and yet they're able to put together something. And it's really, really quite lovely in, in some respects, but it's fairly shallow, because if you don't have the backing of the state, it becomes pretty fragile. And so these kinds of participatory institutions, the planning councils that they build up, are they operate in, you know, about half of municipalities throughout Colombia. And they have varying degrees of influence. A lot of it does depend on what the local government really wants to do. But it's not like in, in health um, in Colombia where nothing happened. Um, you're able to build up something that may be hollow, may be strong in some communities, highly variable, but it's all sustained by the, the energy of civil society. And that's pretty tricky to, to do if you're not able to build in the kinds of resources and supports from the state along the way that make it more self-sustaining. And so this is a, a case where it was surprisingly effective, but it was sort of only, you know, halfway there. And can and and in that case, it also sounds like it's not a model to be considered or duplicated because it doesn't have key components that are necessary in terms of sustaining participatory institutions. Is that correct? Well, I would say, okay, if you want to talk about a model to be duplicated, you have to talk about the strategic interests of different actors. So if you're in a context where the state isn't supporting it at all, I would look at this and say, huh, this is, you have a lot more room than people actually normally would think you could have, right? They, the, I have an article that comes out of this section of the book called, uh, that is about society-driven participatory institutions, which is what I call it. Um, and they have a lot of limitations. But if your alternative is nothing, 
then you can get quite a bit done. It's just not going to be as strong as it could be in another context. But if you're civil society, you can't necessarily control if the state is going to be open or closed down to you. And so what this kind of model would be, it would say, well, yeah, you're not able to have that same sort of deliberative process of working with the state, but you can do things like hold the state accountable. And so what these uh, the planning councils do is that they're they're better at doing more investigations, more follow up accountability, um, tracing uh, budget expenditures based on freedom of information, that kind of research. And then if they can build relationships with the media, they can disseminate that and they can be involved in the policy process in that way. Um, It's not as ideal, but it's still, I think, so I think I would always say for this is look around and see what kind of world you're in, right? Uh, What your opportunities are and who your strategic allies might be. And, and so in that regard, what, what is the conclusion that you reach throughout the sort of comparisons, not only across countries, but across the various different policies, because just the ones that you compared within Colombia have such different dynamics, not only in terms of their success rates, but also how they happened. Right. Um, there are a couple of, of different conclusions. And, and I was writing this thinking that I would like to have people who are involved in policy advocacy or in international development read this and think about the implications. Um, the first one would be that you should not trust in people's better angels, that if somebody <laughs> was really excited about this because they recognize democracy is important now, then that's not going to be sustainable. You should think about what is what does make something sustainable. And ultimately, what makes something sustainable is linking um, some sort of policy reform or new institution for participation with the self-interest of powerful groups, of a, of a broad array of powerful groups. Um, and so if you can find ways of getting elites interested in this project, that's good. Um, if you can link it up with some other kind of broader policy reform and do that ideational work of convincing people, no, no, these two things, they go together and they can really be, they can complement each other. And this is in your interest. I know you don't necessarily... You know, this doesn't seem as important for for your objectives, but this could be in your better interest. If we can get some of the of groups like that have a lot of resources and power, um, like professional associations, like subnational governments, like um, unions, also have been a key key player. If we can get them involved, um, that can be that can be really key. Uh, so I think that there is an ideational process in terms of convincing people, but also building up these broader systems and thinking about how to bring lots of people together to make something that's going to last a, a longer a longer period of time. And then also to recognize the the world that you're in in terms of whether um, you have friendly actors from the state or not. And thinking about what kinds of roles the state can and should be playing in this process, um, that you don't want to be building up um, a participatory institution that involves a lot of deliberation with the state if the state is really just not all that committed. Um, And so maybe then you should focus on something that would be more about promoting um, transparency and accountability after the fact and holding their feet to the fire rather than than focusing so much just on deliberation. And and so given this extensive research that you did for this book is you know you you went to these countries and you spent a lot of time interviewing people and um, sitting in on council meetings and um, experiencing a lot of the sort of participatory institutions um, firsthand. What is it that you're working on now? Yeah. Um, so I would say that fundamentally, I was always interested with this, this question in that process of, or in the dynamics of how do you build up citizenship, really? Uh, how do you make that a, a real thing, especially in Latin America, where there's so much inequality and exclusion? And so I'm not doing as much work 
right now on the participatory institution side of things. The part that that I was left really wondering more about at the end of this this project was about how do you build up those kinds of social rights reforms? How do you build up um, these sweeping reforms that dramatically expand um, ideas about what people's rights are and what they have entitled to? Um, and so that it process is where, where I'm going um, now. So thinking about that more as, say, instead of the independent variable of having sweeping reform, of making that more of the dependent variable. So how do you build up some of these new ideas um, and how do you mobilize state and society together? And so the I'm doing this through, through two projects. Um, one is about how do you build up rights-based systems of child protection. This is one of the areas that I came across in Brazil, where they also have an extensive system of of councils. But how do you take uh, a group that wasn't really thought of as having many rights in the past, historically in Latin America, of children, in particular, more marginalized um, children, street-connected youth, um, children who are in conflict with the law, uh, children who are victims of sexual exploitation, and how do you build up new kinds of state systems for these groups to really extend citizenship to them where they hadn't been before? And then I have a, another project that looks at um, some of these ideas with um, street-connected youth and then also people who are experiencing homelessness and thinking about the ways that governments are strategically using ideas of human rights um, and talking about the rights of, of homeless people and the rights of children to advance urban renewal projects and urban reform projects in city centers. Um, so looking at the ways that, that you see these ideas of, of rights and citizenship rights come into the political sphere and gain a sense of currency uh, that can be harnessed for lots of different political purposes. And so fundamentally, I'd say these are these are all connected by an interest in citizenship and how to make citizenship real on the the ground, whether it's through participation or whether it's through um, new kinds of social policy. Uh, And those are the the, lot of the big questions that I'm thinking about going forward. And so I hope when you finish the next book that you'll come back on the New Books and Political Science podcast and talk to me about it. I would love that. It sounds really interesting. And also, like there are many strands that you'll be weaving together in it. Um, so I wanted to thank you for joining me today. Um, as I was speaking to Lindsay Meka, who is the author of Building Participatory Institutions in Latin America, Reform Coalitions and Institutional Change. This is published in 2019 by Cambridge University Press. Lindsay, any place anybody can pick up this book? Um, you can pick it up from the, the Cambridge website. Um, and anywhere, anywhere you can find online, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining me today. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thank you. <laughs>